Church. Uh, my name is Eric Noah. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, we've been going through a 40 days of obedience, and we're actually at the end of it all now. And we're going to be looking at the life of the Apostle Paul today to kind of wrap everything up and hopefully uh, get you guys geared up to take this, these words of Christ very, very seriously over your lives. Um, you know, one thing I want to make note of before we start is in Philippians chapter 4, uh, Paul tells us something really interesting. He says this, and uh, you don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but he says this. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Very interesting passage because Jesus, or, or uh, sorry, a lot of times Christians believe, hey, we got to look at Jesus as our, as our example, and that's true. That's absolutely true. We look at Jesus as our example, uh, but oftentimes the Bible tells us to look at Paul. To look at people who have greater faith than us as an example of our, the way we should walk as Christians. And so today we're going to be looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. But also I want to encourage you. If you are a mentor, if you are a discipler, discipleship, mentorship is not always about giving people an, extremely, uh, an extreme amount of knowledge. Or giving them uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bible verses or wisdom or advice. It's not always held in that. It's actually in the way you live your life. If actually you live your life according to God's word, people will see that, people will be drawn to it, and they will give themselves over to Christ by the way in which you live. And so that's an encouragement for anybody who's discipling. Uh, but with that said, we're going to be looking at the life of Paul today. Uh, we're going to be looking primarily at Philippians chapter 3, which is one of his autobiographical accounts. He tells us a little bit about his life, but we're also going to be looking kind of uh, later on in the, in the sermon at two other passages in which Paul talks directly about his own life and about the work that Christ has done in his life. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Uh, and if you're able to at this moment, if you would all rise with me as we read God's word together. And... Uh, by the way, we, we rise not because it's some magical thing or whatever. It's, it's really because we want to honor God's word. God's word is so precious and it's so wonderful for our lives and faith. Uh, and so we want to honor it as we read it. So let me go ahead and read Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll jump into this. This is Paul uh, speaking from prison. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by, uh, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we pray 
that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our eyes, God, that we might be able to see, God, what you have here stored for us today. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would really, God, sanctify our hearts this morning. Would you work with the word that is preached to really illuminate these truths in our lives, that, God, we would not be the same people that we came in here today, that, God, when we leave, we'd be transformed by the power of your Spirit. God, we thank you for this time. We pray this all in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. And go ahead and be seated. Um, we have three points as we usually do today. The first point is Paul's bad news about obedience, okay? So there's really bad, bad news about obedience. I, I'm sorry to say that, uh, but there is. But then there's the point number two, which hopefully we'll pick it back up, Paul's good news about obedience. And then our third point will be Paul's disciplined obedience. So if you're taking notes, those are going to be our three points for today. So let's go ahead and jump into the first uh, uh, sort of um, uh, the, the first point, Paul's bad news about obedience, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, uh, I grew up watching late-night TV shows like, uh, like Jay Leno uh, on The Tonight Show, and then afterwards would be Conan O'Brien with The Late Show, and I loved watching those TV programs. But occasionally, every once in a while, I'd stay up even later than Conan O'Brien, right? and this is before Carson Daly came out with his show um, that ultimately failed, but it's okay, God still loves him. But, um, but there were these things called infomercials. I don't know if you guys remember this. Infomercials would come on late at night, and they would sell you things like Ginsu knives, or they would sell you uh, like laundry detergent that would, you know, uh, uh, take out every stain, right? And they would kind of sell you these things. And one of the things that I remember personally, and I don't know if you remember this, was the Showtime rotisserie and barbecue. Do you guys remember this? It's like when you put in the chicken, and it's like this little thing. You put the chicken in, you set it, and then you... Oh, yeah, you guys do. You guys remember it. <laughs> Set it and forget it, right? Um, and and this, this, uh, this product was actually put forth by this guy named Ron Pupil, and he created his own company called Ronco. And it, I didn't know this about Ron Pupil, but Ron Pupil was probably one of the greatest salesmen of our time. He revolutionized the way we sell products. And one of the ways in which he did that was he took his product, he would just invent, he'd go to these carnivals, he'd talk, he'd speak, he'd try to sell things. But then when the television came into being, he ultimately took his products and he took them to the television and started selling them. And Ron Popeil had all of these different tactics. You know, he would start off with the, this will only, you know, this is worth $400, but it's not $400, it's $350. No, it's not $350, it's $300. And he'd go down and down. He's like, but it'd only be for four easy payments of $49.99, and that's all you need to pay, right? He invented these tactics as one of the greatest salesmen in the world. Now, oh, here's one tactic that he also invented, which was the before and after effect. It's when you show what your life looks like before the product enters into your life, and then he shows you what your life looks like after the product. Right, so let's take the rotisserie, uh, Showtime rotisserie and barbecue, right? They would have pictures of this before, right? Black and white image of this guy, you know, flipping, you know, hamburgers and it's all burnt and dry. And he's like, you know, have you ever burned your meat? And, you know, right, it's the before picture, right? Or there'd be an image of uh, some, some person waiting and waiting and looking at their watch while their turkey's baking in the oven. And again, it's in this black and white and they're depressed and they look frazzled, right? Uh, or they'd have a picture of another still, a woman cutting into a dry piece of chicken and, oh, and their knife breaking because the chicken's so dry. And they're like, are you still eating dry, tough chicken, right? And then they introduce the product to you. They say, look at this product now and here's what your life looks like after that product comes into your life. And usually it's in bright color, and it's they're roasting this chicken. They're cutting so smoothly. They're using like a butter knife to cut into this chicken, and they're enjoying it. They're having a great time. They look happy. They look amazing. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because, in some sense, this is what I want to do for you today. I want you to understand what your life will look like before you obey Christ and what your life will look like after you obey Christ. And counter to our culture, 
your life will actually look very different than what Ronco or any of those Showtime uh, rotisserie people say. It'll actually look very, very different, and it won't look like the way you think it'll look like. Because look, if you look at our, uh, at our, at our passage for today, if you look at verses 4 to 6 with me, this is what Paul says. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on this list. He says in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here's what Paul is basically saying. He said, here, in my community, in my Jewish community, this is what like, the perfect Jewish boy looks like. And I actually obtained all those things. All the things that a good little Jewish boy would do, I did all those things, and I became all that, and I had all that. So l- let me bring it to, kind of into our context, right? For a lot of us in this place, we come from an immigrant background, more specifically maybe an Asian-American immigrant background. And for us as a community, sometimes we, we have this ideal list, and if I gave you this list, you would recognize this list. If I said this, right, we came from poverty, this person came from poverty, right? This person had a mom and dad who worked day and night so hard, right, so that we couldn't see our moms or our dads. Or, you know, this person worked hard in school, played the piano uh, till their fingers bled, you know, uh, took SAT prep classes, got into Harvard med school, got into Harvard law school, or really anything with Harvard at the end of it or in the beginning of it, right? (laughs) I'm a doctor or lawyer or CEO, married with kids, living in a beautiful, nice home, supporting now our poor parents who work so hard, uh, speaking fluently in our native language and in our country uh, language. Like this, if we listed out that list, we'd be like, yeah, that's what it means to be a good Asian immigrant boy or girl. And in the same way, what Paul is listing out here is what every Jewish boy or girl ascribed to be. So let me, let's just go through that list very quickly. He says he's circumcised on the eighth day, which in the Old Testament law is mandated. But in reality, Jewish people did not circumcise on the eighth day because there's just too many complications. Life happens. And so nobody actually circumcised on the eighth day. But Paul's like, I'm such a good Jew. I got actually circumcised on the eighth day. I did it. Uh, he says he's of the people of Israel, meaning that he was a pure-blooded Israelite. He was not mixed with any blood. He had no outside influence. He was purely a Jew. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin, which not only meant he was a pure blood, but also that he came from royalty. If you remember in the Old Testament, the king that precedes King David is King Saul. And King Saul, he comes from that tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul is basically saying, I'm royalty. I'm, I'm of royal blood. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he actually spoke and wrote the Hebrew language, which was very rare for Jews in that day because they were, they were in the diaspora. They were spread all across the Roman Empire, and they did not learn their own language. And then he says, finally, I was a Pharisee, meaning that I was educated. I had all of these people pouring into my life. I had the greatest college professors. I had all this knowledge and everything. I had honor. I had status. I had everything. And all the Jewish parents are reading this are like, wow, amazing. This guy did it all. In other words, Paul is saying this. Everything you find value in, I did it all. I had it all. I had everything. This is what my life looked like before Christ came. And then he says, this is what my life looks like after Christ came. Paul meets Christ, and look at verse 7. This is incredible. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He has everything he's ever wanted, anything ever, anyone's ever dreamed of. He meets Christ, and he says, everything's lost. I, I don't even care about it anymore. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us an after picture of what Paul's life looked like after he met Christ. And it's incredible. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but let me read this for you. Paul says this. This is what his life looks like, by the way, after Christ, okay? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. He says, five times, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. I don't know how many times you've been beaten with rods, but that sounds pretty painful. He says, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the brothers, uh, in toil and hardship, uh, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. That's what Paul's life looked like after Jesus. That's crazy. A lot of us think as Christians, we're like, oh, as soon as I accept Jesus into my life, my life is going to look better now. And that's actually not true. If we look at the, Paul's apostles, uh, the Apostle Paul's life as an imitation, we're looking at and we're saying, wow, what the heck did Christ do here? What a way to sell Jesus, right? Here's the before after. He has everything he wants, and afterwards he's being beaten. That's what Jesus has to offer you here today. Now, we've been going through this 40-day obedience, and I just want you to know that if you begin obeying Christ, this is what your life will look like. When you begin taking the words of Christ seriously, your life will not, at least on the outward appearance, get better. It'll actually start looking worse and worse and worse because you will begin sacrificing things for Christ. And if you're new to church today, if you're seeking Christ, if you're not quite a believer, we want to welcome you here. We're so glad that you're with us today. And I have to preach this text because Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14, he says, before you become my disciple, before you commit to me, he says, you have to know what you're getting yourself into. Here's the cost. The cost of following me means persecution. The cost of following me means sacrifice. It means surrender. It means all these different things. And I have to tell you as a pastor that this is what you're getting into if you commit yourself to Christ, that your life on the outside will actually get worse. You'll actually give money away till it hurts. You'll actually help the poor and you'll give up your time and your resources till it actually hurts you. You'll actually do these things for Christ and him alone. And so my question to you is, is he worth the cost? Is he worth it? Now that's the bad news, all right? Let's move on to our second point, Paul's good news about obedience, okay? If you're discouraged, okay, don't be discouraged for too long because here comes the good news, okay? Here comes the really, really good news, okay? Because uh, we have point number two and that's hopefully to help lift you up, okay? Look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, not only the stuff that I had, but everything in life, everything as loss, because the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This word rubbish, uh, you know, sorry to be crass, but it actually means like poop. It means like crap. That's what he's saying. I count it all as crap in order that I may gain Christ. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, after I met Christ, I had all these things. I had everything I had wanted in life. After I met Christ, everything that I had, I just, it's garbage. It's rubbish. It's poop. I don't even want it in my house. Like, even if you tried to give it to me, I would push it away. Even if you tried to give me everything, I would just, I would here, take it back. 
Because he met Christ. He saw something greater than all of the things here. He met something far greater. And so he says, this rubbish compared to this. Let me give you a, a very childish uh, illustration of this. Um, and, and you'll see why. But, uh, you know, when I, uh, I lived here during college, and I remember uh, one of my friends, he came up to me. He was like, Eric, do you want to try this thing called kamjatang? And if you're not familiar with Korean uh, or Korean cuisine, kamjatang is basically like a stew. It's like a, but it's made out of pork neck or pork back. Uh, and so they take the spine, they boil it. I know it sounds really nasty, but it's actually very delicious. Okay, they boil the spine with water and different things, and it turns out to be this amazing soup. So he asked me, "Hey, do you want to try kamjatang?" And I was like, "Sure." He's like, "It's in Vancouver, Canada, so we have to drive like three hours to get there." So I was like, "Okay." So we actually go. We actually go to Vancouver. I get to this place and I eat the kamjatang there, and it's amazing. Right, it's this popular place, there's like celebrities, and maybe some of you have actually maybe been there. There's like celebrities on the wall, all these people that have eaten there, and I was like, wow, this is really good. And then a few years later, I moved to Los Angeles, where I was for the last nine years until I came here. And when I went to Los Angeles, I remember one of my friends said, hey, Eric, like, you have to try this kamjatang place. And I was like, man, you, you don't know. I went to Vancouver, and I had this amazing kamjatang. Little did I know that LA is basically like little Korea, right? So there's like... Every Korean dish you ever want in your life, the amazing, you know, whatever, it's all there. And so I was like, okay, sure, I'll go and I'll try this. It's this place called Hamji Park. And if you ever visit LA, you should definitely go there. I'll, hopefully I get paid by them to advertise them. But uh, <laughs> Hamji Park, it's amazing. They have kamjatang. And they brought out this bowl to me, steaming hot. And I dipped my spoon in there and I put it to my mouth. And I kid you not, this true story, I laughed because it was so delicious. <laughs> like, I've never done that in my life. I've never laughed because something was so good. Like, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, I laughed and, and I ate and I ate. And I was, man, I, this true story. I, I came back to Seattle the next summer and my friend was like, hey, you want to eat kamjatang again? <laughs> and I was like, you know what, let's, let's see. Let's see what it's like. So I drive three hours north. We go to kamjatang. And I sit down, I kid you not, I put the kamjatang in my mouth and I spit it out. I was like, this is garbage. This is garbage compared to the LA kamjatang. Now I know what you guys are thinking. Are you really comparing Jesus Christ to kamjatang? And that's why I said, right, like, it's a little childish. But it gets the point. It gets the point across, right? When you've tasted something so good, when you've tasted something so amazing, it makes the other thing look like trash. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, like, I've tasted Christ. I've seen him. I've encountered his power, his presence, his love, his grace, and everything in this life seems like garbage compared to it. It's nothing. The apostle Paul would look at a mansion and say, garbage, get it out of here. It stinks. He would look at a Ferrari and say, man, poop. I don't want it. Get it out of here. It stinks. He would look at a nice Rolex, gold, popularity, fame. He'd say, take it all back. I don't want it. I have Christ and all I need is him. That's it. I don't need anything else. The Apostle Paul understood who Christ really was, and because he understood, he counted everything as loss. My life looks worse, the Apostle Paul would say, but I'm telling you, it is so much better because I got a person, and his name is Jesus. Friends, that's my prayer for my life. That's my prayer for your life. That we would count everything in this world garbage compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. You know, um, to make this point a little bit more clear, um, one of the things that my wife and I are very open about is the fact that we actually had two miscarriages when we first uh, got married. Um, you know, she got pregnant immediately after we got married, uh, but then we lost that baby about six weeks in. We ended up getting pregnant again kind of later in our marriage, and uh, we thought this one was going really well. It was eight weeks, it was nine weeks, and then nine weeks hit, and then we lost the baby. 
And I remember during that time, it was just incredibly painful, so much pain. Uh, you know, and, and as a husband, when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to make your wife happy and she's just crying and crying, you can't console her. It just, it saddens you. And so I remember we had some really, really good people in our lives who just said, hey, Eric, like, why don't you go to the Four Seasons Hotel? We'll pay for it. We'll reserve it. Like, just go there and heal. And so for those couple of days over the weekend, we went to the Four Seasons in San Diego or near San Diego. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. I mean, there were pools everywhere. The food was amazing. We ate the most delicious fish tacos that you could ever imagine. Uh, we saw the most beautiful beaches. We were staying in the most elegant hotel. And yet inside of our hearts, we felt empty. There was nothing that could cure that emptiness. No matter how much good food we ate, no matter how many luxuries we had in life, there was nothing that could cure that emptiness. Move fast forward a little bit later, my wife ends up getting pregnant again, and this one comes through. But during her, during her uh, uh, give, you know, while she was giving birth, there was a lot of complications, and so she ended up staying in the hospital for I think roughly around three days before giving birth. There's a lot of complications, and we're stuck in this tiny little dingy hospital room that got no sunlight. You know, we're using these old sheets, and I had to sleep on this crummy old couch, and, and it was just miserable. And we had to eat the cafeteria food, and it was miserable, right? But here's the crazy thing. Like, I would want that experience every single day because at the end of that time, we got a son. Our son was born. He was healthy. He was amazing. And I was just weeping tears when my son was born. And here's the thing, in one scenario, I had everything I wanted in life. I, wanted, I had luxury, I had food, I had all these things. And in this other part, I had a dingy hospital room, cafeteria food. And yet this experience was so much more greater than this experience. This experience had so much more joy in it. Why? Because I got a person. We received the person that we loved and we cherished. And that's why even though we had no luxuries in that room, we felt so much joy. We felt whole, we felt complete because now our son was born and we got to meet him. And in the same way, this is what Jesus will do to you. You think, man, I can't be happy without any luxuries. How can I be happy? And Jesus says, you can be. If you truly get to know who I am and you value me as a person and you worship me and you adore me and you understand these things, your life can be filled with so much joy even though you have nothing at all. Your life may look worse after you begin obeying Christ, but your life will be filled with so much more joy, so much more peace, so much more purpose. You'll be filled with the love of Christ, and you will have Christ himself. So can I ask you now, why are you chasing garbage? Why am I chasing garbage? Why do I chase these things that will never fulfill me? Why do I chase these things that will never bring satisfaction, that will never bring peace? At the end of the day, we chase all of this garbage because you and I are trying to do what Paul did before he met Christ. If you look with me at verses 9 through 11, this is what he says. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul was chasing after this garbage because ultimately he was chasing his own righteousness. Let me translate that a little bit more. He was looking for acceptance from God. He wanted righteousness because ultimately he wanted acceptance from God. And we chase this garbage. We chase status, popularity, fame, money, wealth, all of these things because at the end of the day, we want to be found righteous. We want to be found accepted before God. And Paul says, look, you've already got the acceptance of Christ. 
when Jesus Christ died on a cross for you, his, his blood shed on that cross did not only forgive you of your sins, it did not only cleanse you of your sins, but it gave you a righteousness that was not your own. He gave you his own righteousness. All the obedience in Jesus Christ's life is now placed onto you. And when God sees you, he accepts you, he loves you, he adores you, and he says, you are my child. You don't need these things. You have me and all of me and my acceptance, my love, my grace. Look no further. And the Apostle Paul says, that's the reason why I was able to give up all of these things. Because I understood that I found acceptance in Christ. See, friends, Christian, this is what David Platt says. He's a pastor. He says, Christianity does not be begin with our pursuit of Christ, but with Christ's pursuit of us. Christianity does not start with an invitation we offer to Jesus, but with an invitation Jesus offers to us. And if we want to live lives of obedience, friends, it begins with simply this, receiving that love and that grace and that righteousness that God has already given to you, and to find full acceptance and assurance of your salvation in Him and in Him alone. And this is where your hearts begin to melt. This is where the road to Damascus is, where you begin seeing Christ for who He is, and all of this stuff begins to be rubbish. Now let's move on to our third point, Paul's disciplined obedience. Now here's, you know, maybe a small objection or maybe something, a question that you have in your mind, but maybe you're saying, man, I'm pumped. I'm pumped, Eric. You got me pumped about living radically for Jesus. I want to consider everything as garbage, but I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to begin this journey. Where do I even start? And let me say this, and everything will fall under this point, which is radical living. Radical living for Christ begins with ordinary disciplines. Radical living for Christ begins with ordinary disciplines. And I'm talking about the spiritual disciplines. You know, people think that radical lives come from this one event. We think it's always the Damascus experience, right, where Paul meets Christ for the first time. And we're just like changed and completely changed forever. And yet what we often forget is actually Galatians chapter 1. A lot of us don't know this about Paul's life, but in Galatians chapter 1, he tells us that after he meets Christ on the road, he actually disappears to Arabia for three years. And actually, scholars know that this is kind of the silent years for Paul. We don't know what he did. But a lot of scholars know this, that throughout those three years, or what they believe happened over those three years, that Paul was training. Paul was reading the word. Paul was, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting trained to become an apostle, that he was actually training himself up to become this, uh, just, you know, just, just juggernaut for God in his, in his kingdom. I know we want to live radically right now in this moment, and we have this urgency to do it, but I'm telling you right now, it begins when you just radically obey in, in small doses and, and in just small, ordinary ways the disciplines that Christ has for you. A lot of us want this to happen. We want to become super Christians overnight, and yet it will be a process of years and years of reading the word, of praying, of being in community, and uh, really honing your spiritual disciplines. You know, uh, I, I, I've brought up this book before, but it's a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And one of the concepts he talks about is this idea that a lot of people think companies become great overnight. Because what happens is a lot of times media, a media will actually kind of cover those stories where, where like this company finally broke through and like became like, wow, they're, they're, you know, went exponential or whatever. But he says what you don't realize is that behind that great moment, that moment of explosion, is actually years and years and years of discipline. And so they actually did tons of interviews with these CEOs who were uh, CEOs of great companies. And they asked them, hey, what was that one moment that, that, that led you to explosion, to, it led you to growth? And all of them, 100% of them said there was not a moment. They said it was a series of disciplined actions that then led us to this moment where we grew as a company. 
People only recognize our growth at that moment, but all along the way, there was this discipline, discipline, discipline. And he says, we did not become this great company overnight. It took years and years and years of discipline. A key concept here is to realize that no single push makes a difference. Nothing makes a difference. Not one single thing, but it is years and years and years of discipline. And yet here's the thing that we're up against, friends. We live in a culture that says, you know what? I need everything to be amazing. I need everything to be an event. I need my quiet times to be like revivals. I need my small groups to be amazing all the time. And that's why I don't want to do these things. I don't want to go to these things. I don't want to practice my spiritual disciplines because they're not amazing. Um, you know, one of my pastor friends, his name is Jason Park. He, he led me on to this quote. It's from a guy named Joe Keenan. Uh, he's a writer for the New York Times, but he wrote an article for GQ. And listen to what Joe Keenan says. He says, we insist that every experience be a watershed. Every meal extraordinary. Every friendship uh, 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 epic, every concert superb, every sunset meta-celestial. Life isn't like that. Life isn't like that. Most meals are okay. Most friendships work until they don't. Most concerts are decent. Sunsets are sunsets. This has essentially ruined everything for everybody else because nothing can be exactly what it was in the first place. Something whose very charm is a direct result with it being accessible, near at hand, and ordinary right now is I'm bringing us back to the beginning of this series. Our first week was about being. It's about being with Christ. And sometimes being with Christ is very ordinary. Like this morning, for example, I did my quiet times. Hebrews chapter 7 talks about Melchizedek. I'm, how does Melchizedek? It doesn't. And so my quiet times this morning, okay, I read the Bible. Great. I wasn't super blessed by it, but it's okay. It's a discipline. I do it. My prayer time this morning wasn't explosive. I was just praying for the church, for you. I prayed for the people coming in. I prayed for my wife. I prayed for my family. I, it wasn't amazing, but I did it because it's a discipline. And friends, your community groups, they're not going to always be filled with tears and vulnerability, and sh you know, but, but it's a discipline. And if we do these things daily, I'm telling you, it will, it will find its front. And we will get to know Christ. And we will meet Christ in these little moments, in these ordinary moments. And as we meet Christ daily, we will be washed by his blood again and again. We will confess our sins. We will be challenged. We will be encouraged. These things over and over again until you will see yourself living a radically different life. My encouragement to you is to begin, is to begin with what we began with in this series. Just being with Christ to do your spiritual disciplines, to take your community group seriously, to take your Bible reading, to take your prayer life seriously, to do these things so that we encounter Christ again and again and again. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I know for myself, God, I, I desire this radical way of living, God. For me to count everything in my life as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and Him alone. God, I want that. I want that for our church. God, I can't, I can't even imagine a church that would live this way with this mentality, God, that all of our stuff is garbage. That all of our fame, our popularity, all of the works that we've committed, God, are garbage compared to knowing you. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each and every heart. God, may these words not go shallow. God, may they not go just surface level. But God, may you drive them deep into each and every heart, God. I can preach and I can preach and I can preach. But God, your words will not go deep unless your Holy Spirit does a work. And God, we pray that it goes deep. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each and every heart.
And God, we pray for those, God, who have been distant from you. God, we pray for those who are in the pits of life, who are in the valleys. And God, we pray that they would meet Christ once again, that they would recommit their lives to Christ once again. Because God, that they see once again just how amazing your love and your grace is for them. And God, for those of us who are on the mountaintops, God, I pray for them as well. I pray that you would continuously give them a life of sacrifice and that you would continuously give them a life of joy. God, that your spirit would work in and through their hearts. God, we thank you so much for this time and for this place. We pray this on our sons. Holy and precious name.